We're going to continue our series this morning called Salvation is Here. And specifically this morning, we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus as found in Luke chapter 4. If you want to open your Bibles and head over there. Oscar Wilde said this about temptation. He said, I can resist anything except temptation, which, you know, obviously... The dictionary defines temptation as a desire to do something especially wrong or unwise. Temptation is all around us, and I think we find it defined or illustrated in a story about a young boy who went into the grocery store shopping with his mom, and as they're walking down the aisles, they get to the cookie aisle, and so he just kind of pulls away from his mom and stands there, and his mom continues shopping, and the boy notices a bag of opened cookies right there in front of him, and he stands mesmerized staring at this bag of cookies when suddenly he hears a voice behind him, son, what are you doing? And he turns and says, I'm not doing anything. And the grocery store clerk says, well, it looks like to me you're about to steal some of those cookies. And he said, mister, you are so wrong. I am trying not to. (laughs) I think sometimes that's where temptation's at for us. It's this constant battle of we're trying not to do something. We feel like the doorway to sin of temptation is always in front of us, and we feel ourselves saying like, Man, I'm trying not to go through that door. I'm trying not to fall into sin. I'm trying not to. But temptation is ever-present. And today we're going to look, about, look at the temptation of Christ, and we're going to look at some application of how do we react and respond to temptation. So first, we need to set some of the stage in the background of what's going on here in Luke chapter 4. If you remember a few weeks ago when, when Ron finished up in Luke chapter 3, he talked about the baptism of Christ. The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And so this is kind of, it's after this event that Jesus then goes out. And so we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, to set a little background for the temptations. So verse 1 and 2, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. This is one of those passages where we see Jesus' humanity on display. He knew God's will. He knew his plan, but yet he allows himself to be led by the Spirit. Um, he, he has this desire as a man. And so we, we're going to see it. It's kind of in Scripture, and many times we've identified it this way, um, with a fancy word called hypostatic union. But all it basically means is Jesus was fully God and fully man. And how do we explain that perfectly? We don't. It's one of those things that's tough to explain fully or even understand fully. But we believe Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so at this time, his uh, manhood, in a sense, or his humanity was being um, the part that was going to be very challenging for him because he goes to fast for 40 days. Um, So he's he's aware of the Spirit. He's aware of the Spirit's leading. He allows the Spirit to lead him where he's supposed to go. Um, Jesus many times sets an example in the New Testament of getting up early to pray, of being sensitive to where God's leading him and what God is wanting him to do and not dictating to God, even though he, he was God in a sense, he allowed himself to be led by the Spirit. So as we look at this, some of the questions I had initially to look at are what wilderness? If he was led to the wilderness, which one? Um, many people in early church tradition put these events as occurring in the Judean wilderness. This is a wilderness west of the Dead Sea in a hill district. It would have been on the, a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And if you've ever seen pictures of it, you'll notice it's, it's real rocky, uh, very desolate, and there's a lot of caves there. Tons of caves all over this area. Um, there's a little side point here. Does anyone know what was found in this area of, that was so important to biblical archaeology, um, Christianity, proving the authenticity of Scripture? There was something found in this area. Does anyone know what it was? 
Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and we're going to look at that more. Uh, next time I speak, I'm going to speak on authenticity of Scripture and how important that finding was to uh, some proving biblical in, the ar- in archaeology and historically. But anyways, that, this is kind of the same area where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Some even think they know where the events took place due to a coming reference, and it would have been on Mount Kor and there's a coming reference that's going to describe the highest point. Now, that's not necessarily true. That's definitely, um, if we believe it, was a physical temptation. It was in this Judean wilderness um, out, away from the Jordan River um, and, and uh, near the Dead Sea. So that, that's kind of where it was at. Now, the other thing I thought of, is a 40-day fast even possible? It identifies a 40-day fast. And the first thing I thought, man, I don't know if that's completely possible. If we're honest, there's times we read things like that in the Bible and we think like, oh, I don't know, 40 days, that's a long time. I couldn't do it. Um, so, so I wanted to look and see, is this possible? Um, to make sure we all know what a fast is, so I'm not, I'm not talking about something that you have no clue. Um, a fast is this idea of giving something up, usually food, to focus our attention on God. So he would have given up food for 40 days. We have some examples of fast in the Bible, a 40-day fast. We have Moses went without food and water for 40 days. Um, Daniel went 21 days without eating uh, meat or wine. Um, Elijah fasted for 40 days. And then we see Jesus fasted for 40 days here. Um, there were different types of fasts that permitted different things. Some Jewish fasts would allow bread and water after sunset. Um, I just read a blog from a pastor who uh, he fasted 40 days. He ended in late 2014. And this is what he wrote. He said he lost 30 pounds in that time period. And he drank water. Lots of water, he said, and two to four cups of fruit juice a day. And then as I started looking, there are other modern-day examples of 40-day fast. So a 40-day fast is physically possible. I would say it's not recommended, and it is a rare occasion upon which someone embarks on that. But this is where we find Jesus entering into this 40-day fast and during this 40-day fast. And at the end of verse 2 in Luke chapter 4, we have kind of one of those great biblical understatements. If you look at the end of verse 2, what does it say there? He was hungry, wasn't he, Kathy? I don't know about you guys. Have you ever like ate a late lunch and then you get up late and so you skip breakfast and so you're not not eating again until like the next day at lunch? I'm I'm the only one maybe who does that, okay. (laughs) There's times I do that in life, okay? I just, I'd rather sleep than eat usually. That's my, uh, sleep could be my downfall more than food, um, believe it or not. And so... Yeah, I'll do that. And I can't imagine, like, I get up the next day and then I get going and I, I, I just don't eat because I, I slept too late and I need to get somewhere. All right. And then by lunchtime, man, I'm hungry. Like, I am like, I'm craving some food, some Hunan Villa or I don't know, so, some taco truck or something here in Oakdale that you can get. I can't imagine what it feel like 40 days later. So to say he was hungry would be quite the understatement for us. And we got to remember at this time, it's easy for us to say, well, 40 day fast, he was hungry. Yeah, but he was also God, but, but he's fully man and he's experiencing everything. uh, We feel as humanity, as we feel as humans, he would feel hungry at this time. Jesus hunger was no less real than your hunger or my hunger. He was very hungry and he's in this middle of this, that he's going to be in the middle of this temptation. And this is the state we find him in. He's hungry. He's alone. He's in a desolate place. And the great tempter is about to enter. So I think it's important for us to understand Jesus, yes, fully God, fully man, in his humanity is hungry. And he's in this place of desolation and loneliness. And now Satan's going to enter and bring these temptations, okay? 
I think we got to understand that he was human at this point, and he felt hunger the same way we feel. It wasn't some supernatural thing where he went 40 days and was like, no, I'm fine, I'm go another 40 in your face. He was hungry. <laughs> so we're going to see the physical temptation of Jesus here in Luke chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. This is our first thing, the physical temptation. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And as we look at this first temptation, I wanted to briefly look at the, or answer the question. I don't know, answer, give you the question maybe. Um, There's many different people who think two ways on these temptations. Some think they took place in a spiritual realm and others take, think they took place in a literal physical realm and I would lean towards that idea or that notion that it was a physical real temptation but many Bible scholars uh, think that it was a spiritual realm kind of where he was tempted in the spiritual realm and you don't actually see the physical appearance of Jesus or of Satan at this point I, I like what one author said he took the position of a spiritual encounter but here's what he said and I think it sums it up terrifically it was nonetheless real and the value of the victory was nonetheless incalculable and decisive So whatever side you take on this, whether it was a real physical uh, involvement, interaction between Satan and Jesus, or it was in the spiritual realm, the the reality is Jesus remained sinless in it and stood up to the the tempter at this time and the temptations. So at the end of the day, the, the outcome is the same and the outcome is what's important. So we just read, Jesus has finished his 40 day uh, fast. He's very hungry. He was a man. He was hungry. He felt that hunger inside of him. His desire to eat was not wrong. Okay, um, that, that's one thing that could be uh, mistaken in this passage. If you had not eaten for 40 days, you'd be hungry, and that would not be wrong. It would not have been wrong for Jesus to eat at this time. At some point after his 40-day fast, Jesus ate food. He did not go the next three years never eating another meal. Okay, so at some point after this fast, he eats again. What's the issue right here? The issue we are, yeah... The issue at point is turning the stone into bread, as Satan suggested, would have shifted his obedience away from his heavenly father into Satan. So it wasn't that eating was wrong. It wouldn't have been that eating bread is wrong. It's that turning that stone into bread and obeying someone else other than his heavenly father, he would have had a shifted obedience and allegiance. The first temptation is really, it's not that bad. It's very simple. It comes to him, you're hungry. Why don't you turn the stone into bread? This isn't like Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back calling out to Luke, come with me and we'll rule the galaxy as father and son. And we hear John Williams' music playing in the background to identify that this is an evil situation, an evil man. Although that could be helpful for us Star Wars fans out there if every time we were tempted, the Imperial Death March played in the background. Like we would know then, okay, I'm being tempted. This is bad. Run away. But it wasn't like that. There wasn't a guy wearing a black mask and speaking with the James Earl Jones voice to let him know, like, no, this is evil. It's a very subtle, very simple temptation. Satan's already tried the temptation of food with success all the way back in Genesis, if you remember, in a very simple way with Adam and Eve. And now he tries it with Christ. The simplicity of the temptation is oftentimes what entraps us. You know, it's so simple, we don't have our guard up. I've said this before, and and I'll probably say it many times throughout my life if I get the privilege of speaking multiple times. I don't think people wake up one day and just say, to heck with it all. I'm going to destroy my family. I'm going to destroy my relationships. I'm going to commit some heinous act today that's just terrible. 
I think what happened is over a period of time, it's that slow progression of giving in to temptations, even the simple ones. And we start to find ourselves shifting our obedience and our allegiance away from God. You know, I just, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think a, a dad or husband wakes up and says, I, w- I want to destroy my family. I want to do this today. It's over time, these simple temptations that we just don't always have our guard up for and we don't see in front of us. And we give in to those temptations and slowly our obedience and our allegiance shift us away from God and righteousness into sin and its master, Satan. And as our obedience shifts, so does our allegiance. See, Jesus is in great hunger at this point, but he is not willing to shift his, ob- his obedience for his temporary satisfaction. The temporary pleasure he'd gain from food is not worth the allegiance he would then be giving to Satan. Instead, he responds with scripture from a part of Deuteronomy 8.3, and he says this, man does not live on bread alone. And he places obedience to God above his own physical need. The elevation of the importance of obeying God and being obedient to him. You see, eating bread is very simple. It's not a big thing. Jesus did many miracles, turned water into wine. He could have turned the stone into bread, but he would have shifted his obedience and placed his own physical need above his obedience and allegiance to God. And so he responds, lifting up God's desire. Man does not live on bread alone. It's not my physical need I need to be worried about. So we're going to see another temptation now. The next temptation is a positional temptation. And we look in Luke chapter 4 and verse 5 through 8. The, def- the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, was this just a high mountain or was it a, uh, an encounter in the spiritual realm? Some thinks it was that Mount Quarantania we just mentioned. Some think it was Mount Hermon because he led him away, led him up to a high place. And others think it was in the spiritual realm. But, but that's of lesser importance to what's happening. And as I looked at this temptation, I thought, well, this of all the temptations in this seems very simple to uh, turn away from and not engage in. Because if you look in Colossians 1, and later maybe you want to read Colossians 1. It's a, it's a great passage. But it, it basically tells us Jesus is preeminent overall he was eternally existent with god he was intimately involved with creation all things were made for him and through him you know he is going to be he is ruler and will continue to rule forever over all so why would he sell out for a lesser reign what's the temptation here that's that would be tempting even to consider and as i read and looked at it more and more i thought this is the temptation and i studied this some this week um, the great temptation is this is he can have a reign without the cross Jesus is going to rule and reign forever, but the path for God's plan for redemption and Jesus' eternal reign led him to the cross of Calvary. And at this point, Jesus can have that reign and rule without the cross. It would be to a lesser extent, and it would be shifting his obedience and allegiance to Satan, but he could be ruler over, over kingdoms. And at this point in time, that's the temptation for him. Because you see, Jesus, being fully God, knows what awaits him. And being fully man, he's seen what happens when people are crucified. He's seen the uh, horrific and the physical suffering that would come from crucifixion. And at this point, he's offered the chance to reign without that. This is his chance to look out for number one. It's his chance to get out of this, get the easy out. This is the shortcut that avoided Calvary. 
by avoiding this shortcut, though, he embraced Calvary and he embraced the necessity of the atoning work that would be accomplished there. Jesus, in this moment, displays his love for us that's referenced so many times throughout Scripture. We find many passages that talk about Christ died for us or Jesus loved us. This is it. This is one of those illustrations of that where he could have walked away and said, I'm not going down that path. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember his prayer, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was awaiting him. He knew the, the physical torment that was, that, that was waiting there on Calvary's cross for him. And instead of turning from that and accepting a lesser reign and accepting that shortcut to the cross, he embraced the cross. He embraced Calvary. He embraced God's plan, God's position for his life. If he chose to leave that atoning work on the cross unfulfilled, where would that have left us? We, we would be condemned. We would stand before God condemned without the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So he did not take the shortcut. He did not take the easy way out. He responds instead with a passage of scripture from Deuteronomy 6. And he says this, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus was on a mission and no measly offer from Satan was going to change that. When faced with temptation, how often do we sell out for something less than God's best for us? See, Satan does offer us something in temptation. We can't say that there's no offer there, otherwise it's not tempting. You know, if Satan just offered us a pile of rocks versus God, God's pile of gold or whatever, I mean, it would be obvious. But the reality is Satan uh, does appeal to our desires. He appeals to what we're longing for. There is a great appeal to things that are tempting, otherwise they wouldn't be tempting. So at this point, there's this appeal to Jesus of this shortcut to, to reign without the cross. <clears throat> Many times what he's tempting us with is lies, and always it's less than God's best. Our struggle is oftentimes to see the result of that, because we see the, heart, the hardship that's coming, or we see, if I choose this path, we see here the direct implications of our life. I had a football coach who he would, he would holler out there, we'd be running, we'd be doing bear crawls, or their, their favorite thing, my most hated thing, was dragging railroad ties, so they had a chain Drilled through a railroad tie, linked together, and then two old tire tubes. You'd, you'd la, la, wrap over your shoulders, and you'd have to drag them. And if it got too easy as the season went on, they'd go get a, a load of sand and dump it where you drug them to make sure it wasn't easy on you. Um, and it was hard. Like, I remember many times doubled over and seeing what I ate earlier in that day coming back out, okay? It was not easy. And I remember him standing out there and saying, there's no shortcut to success, and there's no substitute for hard work. And he said, I wish there was, but there's not, so get back at it, basically. So often in life, we want the shortcut. We want the easy path. We want what's going to set us in the best position. And it's not always the position that God has set for us. And this was Jesus' moment for a shortcut. Instead, he understands the atoning work is necessary. Romans 3.25 tells us this. The blood sacrifice of Jesus was necessary for our salvation. And Christ does not take the easy route. He did not seek an easy route for an elevated position that would have left us hopeless without a Savior. So the first thing we saw is his physical temptation. The next thing we saw is the positional temptation. And the last temptation we see here is the prideful temptation. In Luke chapter 4, verse 9, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. 
They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered and said, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. I read a great definition of pride this week. It said, Pride expects God to do something not in his plan. And Satan is using the scripture reference here. Earlier in the, in the uh, passage there, in verse 10 through uh, 11, uh, Satan is using a scripture reference to Jesus concerning his well-being. And so he's quoting scripture to Jesus like he needs it quoted to him and trying to say, you'll be rescued by angels. Just prove it. You're God's son. I, I know it. You know it. Why don't you just prove it to people? And pride makes it easy for us to think more highly of ourselves than we should. And we find here that God's own son rejects the notion of pride and having to prove anything to Satan. Are, are there any Back to the Future fans out there by any chance? Okay, so at least three of you will get this. All right, great, good. So I'm not completely alone. Do you guys remember what would happen um, anytime Marty McFly was called a chicken or called yellow? He would well up with pride, wouldn't he? And he'd be like, I'll show you. And Biff would antagonize him. He'd call him in, in Back to the Future 3, the Western one, which, um, you know, is one and three are the best if you've never watched them. He would well up with pride when he was called yellow. And he'd be like, I have to prove a point to you. I'll prove to you I'm not a chicken. I'll prove to you I'm this man. And his pride would swell up inside him and say, I'm not going to let you get the best of me. But by doing so, he'd let him get the best of him usually. And many times, as I kind of related to this point, I saw this as Satan's that great antagonizer right now, trying to say like, I know you're God's son. You know you're God's son. Just prove it. Just jump off this temple. Nothing's going to happen to you. Why don't you prove your point? Go ahead and shut me up. Prove you are who you say you are. And this desire to prove a point or to make a statement would have been eternally destructive. You see, in his desire to prove a point, he would have been guilty of being prideful and would have been guilty of sin at this point. So what would he have proved in proving his point? He's God's son, and, and, and yet now we're hopeless. So Satan's very cunning and very devious, as we often find. He uses subtle temptations. He doesn't always just come out and say like, hey, go shoot someone. Okay, I know that's wrong, obviously. He uses a lot more subtlety than that. Why don't you go out and prove, prove who you, you are who you say you are? <clears throat> Jesus had no pride to prove a point to Satan, to Satan. And I find it interesting. The one person who rightfully could have been prideful in his position was not. How many of us can say that? that that's a tough one sometimes for me. Having to prove a point, having to be right to someone else. And if I am right, making sure they know that I was right. <laughs> if I'm honest, there's a struggle in there for me. But sometimes we let our pride well up inside of us do we belittle others because of the pride we have about ourselves? when people goad us do we give in i find it interesting here the the situation of you have jesus trying to goad god's son jesus into um falling into sin and tempting him with pride why do we let idiots goad us into doing things we don't want to do into being prideful i mean you have satan doing that to Jesus, and, and Jesus doesn't fall for it. Yet so often in our daily lives, we, we, let, we let people do that. Like, and then we respond. We, why? Because we have to prove a point. Why do we have to prove that point? Because we're prideful about who we are instead of just being secure in who we are in Christ. 
like I have to prove this to you. I have to show you. Jesus instead resisted the temptation by once again referencing Scripture. And he references Deuteronomy 6.16 and he says this, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And I love the definition that was stated earlier. Pride expects God to do something that is not in his plan. Boy, basically it's saying we elevate our opinion and what we think of ourselves. And so we expect God to respond to how we act. So we expect God to shift and alter his plan because it's me. Do we expect God to modify based on what we, our, our poor decisions? Pride expects God to do something that is not in his plan. A side note, kind of as we went through these passages here, um, one thing I wanted to address before we get into some application. Concerning the three temptations, there's uh, two schools of thought kind of. One is that Jesus could have sinned. He could have chose to sin and fallen into temptation. And the other is that being uh, God and divinity, he could not have sinned. I lean towards that direction, that Jesus could not have sinned while on earth, that while his deity was veiled, he was still divine and could not have embraced sin. But the bigger picture here is this. In order to have a redeemer, an atonement for sin, someone who took the place on the cross for our sins, he had to be perfect and without sin, holy and blameless. So whatever side we land on on that argument really is not that big a deal because the ultimate point here is that Jesus went through all three temptations and came out the other side holy, blameless, without sin, and able to go to Calvary's cross and receive our punishment for sin because he had not sinned. That, that's the big understanding here is that he was the sufficient sacrifice to pay the price of sin. Regardless if he could sin or if he could not, Jesus was that sufficient sacrifice. So a couple application questions, and then I'm going to look at one other thing here. Where's your obedience and allegiance? We talked about that, that initial simple temptation of food. It wasn't that eating food would have been so bad, but it's that the shifting obedience and allegiance would have been very condemning. You see, when we say yes to those things, we're saying no to God. Satan wants us to say yes to him and no to God. And he doesn't just come out and say that. Like, hey, choose to become an atheist today all the time or choose to deny God's existence or choose to be obedient to, to Satan now. It's much more simple. And he's striving to get shifted obedience and allegiance. Where are you obedient to? What temptation is challenging you to shift your obedience to God? Maybe it's a simple thing, but it's before you and you see it and it's challenged you daily to say, man, just, just come over here. Shift your obedience a little bit. Shift your obedience away from God into this. Where does that struggle occur for you? Do you seek your own position or God's desire? Now, these two can overlap sometimes, absolutely. They're not always mutually ex exclusive, but they don't always overlap. So what happens when the path that leads to your benefit, or at least the extent you can see it, the temptation of the easy path, the shortcut, is the path that leads away from God? Where do you tend to walk? What path do you follow in those situations? You see, the positional temptation there for Jesus was the shortcut. Am I always seeking the shortcut to success, even if that means I have to harm others and wrong others and do it the wrong way? Am I always just seeking, I want the easy way. I want the way that benefits myself. Jesus had the path to rule that benefited himself and condemned the rest of us. Do we fall for that positional temptation in life? When you have opportunities that could harm, damage relationships, harm others, do you seek that? At the, at the expense of those relationships to benefit yourself? You know, what temptation would cause you to walk away from God and to just look out for yourself? 
And the last application thought, in our pride, do we have to prove our point? Do we have to show this person? Is it just like well up inside of you that I've got to show this person now? I was right and they need to know about it. Or in this situation, I've got to show them who I am. Don't they know I'm important? I will show them I'm important. Where we have Jesus, God's own son, who, who was important, obviously, choosing not to be prideful in this moment. But for us, many of us, if we compare ourselves to Christ, or all of us, if we compare ourselves to Christ, our positions on earth are, are not important. But yet many times we, we think we need to well up and show these people and show like, I'm important and I'm going to show you about it. These are areas that if most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with at least one of them. You know, John summed it up this way in 1 John 2.16. He said this, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. You know, many times we find ourselves like that boy staring at the open bag of cookies. And if we're honest, it's hard. And what we're saying is, I'm trying not to. When we're tempted, we say, I'm trying not to. I I feel that. We live in an interesting time in in our culture. The ability to follow the Lord and the means in which to do it, there's never been so many opportunities to where we could read God's word with a click of the mouse and we could study it. Like this week when when I'm looking things up, a couple clicks of a mouse and I could have multiple commentaries, I could have study guides, I could have all these things. But yet with that same technology, I could be doing things that are devious and turning me away from the Lord. The dichotomy of it's very interesting because we live in this culture where it is in a sense, so easy, but yet so complicated and so challenging. You know, we have basically no persecution here in America, and yet we're accepting and tolerant of everything, even things that are sinful and take us away from the Lord. Most of us in this room have all of our needs met and even a majority of our wants, and yet we still desire more, and we constantly yearn for more and want more and more. So this dichotomy is very interesting because we have what we need in God and Christ and, and so we should be satisfied in him and, and all these things, and yet we're constantly falling prey to temptation. What's that bag of cookies for you? Somewhere in those three temptations, we probably all struggle. And if you said you don't struggle with any one of those three temptations, I may suggest a fourth temptation for you. It's called lying. <laughs> At some point, we struggle with temptation in our lives, if we're honest. And maybe it doesn't fall exactly in, in one of those three, but in the bigger scope of pride and position and physical, I bet you there's somewhere in there that we struggle. I, I, I could say there's parts of all three that I struggle with. So how do we respond to temptation? How do we respond when we're encountered with temptation on a daily basis? The first thing I think we noticed here is Jesus was filled with the Spirit. By being filled with the Spirit like Jesus was. He was led by the Spirit, not by his desire as a man. And again, as I read this week and looked at it, being filled with the Spirit, I loved how someone put it. Being filled with the Spirit means you have to be yielded to the Spirit. You have to be yielded to his control. See, a lot of us, we want to be filled with the Spirit like we want the big emotional experience without the daily yielding. We want to go to the big event that gets us hyped up for Jesus and uh, six flags over Jesus, and we're so excited but we won't want to do the daily yielding of our lives, saying, I yield my life to you and I'm going to follow you today. We want the big event that makes us feel terrific instead of the daily process of yielding to Jesus. Kyle Eidemann, a pastor in Kentucky at Southeast Christian Church, wrote a book called Not a Fan. Um, he's wrote some other books. They're really good. Um, 
he said this, and I assume it's true. I don't think he lied about it. In his book, he said and where he goes to pray most often and read his Bible is he wrote this inscription on the wall, and it says this, I die daily. I'm just remembering he dies to himself daily to yield to, the, yield to God and yield to the Spirit. A lot of times we want this feeling, the emotional feeling or the emotional experience without the daily yielding. Are you yielded to the Spirit where he's leading you in life? The next thing we see Jesus' response, and we can learn from it, is Jesus responded with the truth of God's word. Every time he was tempted, what did he respond to? He responded to the truth that had been established in God's word. So he went back, and each passage, he went to Deuteronomy. But we can go other places in scripture. We have the full canon now. How do you respond to temptation? Is it with this, like, I'm going to, like, might myself through it? How's that working out for you? Man, there's times we've got to admit, I, I'm a sinner by nature and I'm broken. And we've got to turn back to the truth God's established in his word, not this idea of I'm going to help myself and it's my willpower, it's just going to get me through it. Of turning to God and saying, here's the truth that's been established in his God word to whisper. Uh, when Satan's whispering lies and temptation's whispering lies to you, you can turn to the truth of God's word that is established and say, no, here's the truth. I'm not falling for the lies that you're whispering in my ear right now. Every time Jesus went back to God's word and said, here's the truth of scripture, Satan even manipulated scripture at one point to get at Jesus. And what does he do? He responds with the truth of scripture. The last thing is we see that Jesus talked about worshiping God and worshiped God. So we respond in worship. Rather than seeking the desire to lift us up, Jesus reminds us to worship God, to set him as preeminent in our life. If we establish worship of God and worship of Christ above everything else, the temptations will, they'll be belittled. They'll grow smaller. If we're not worshiping the things of this world, if I'm not worshiping the things I desire, if I'm not worshiping the position, if I'm not worshiping that person, if I'm not worshiping that job or whatever it is, that school, what are the things we worship that we worship ahead of God so we set our eyes on them and we're tempted to follow after them and pursue them at all cost? Well, it's because we worship them. We love them more than God and we're worshiping them, so we're pursuing them. If we worship God above all else, yeah, there's going to be time of disappointments, obviously. But when we worship him, we're satisfied in him and we're satisfied in our relationship with him. So when I don't get into that school, my life isn't crushed. Because I'm not worshiping a school, I'm worshiping God. Or when this person, that relationship doesn't work out, I'm not crushed because I wasn't worshiping a person, I was worshiping God. Who are you worshiping? We're reminded in James 1 that when we give in to temptation and sin and then continue in that sin, it ultimately brings destruction and death into our life. So the last thing I wanted to look at quickly here is where do we turn when these destructive patterns have taken hold of our life? Where do we go when the temptation has led to sin and the sin has led to a pattern of sin and the pattern of sin has led to habitual sin and we're struggling and we see it? Um, you're no longer at the point where it's just tempting. You see the destructive power of sin in your life because many of us uh, could say we've been down that road before and we've seen the destructive power whether firsthand or in the lives of others. You see how sin destroys, and so it's no longer this temptation to you, but you're, you're caught in this destructive path. Where, where do you go? What do you do? Ultimately, as a church, that's what we want to share with you, is where do you go in this? And as our series title says, salvation is here. Salvation, salvation came in the person of Jesus Christ. He came 
fully man, experiencing our sufferings, identifying with our temptations, and yet without sin. He can identify with us, and he did it without sinning. The price that was paid for sin was Jesus' death on the cross, the sinless death of Jesus on the cross. When offered the shortcut that would have condemned us, he refused. Hebrews 4, 14 says this and 15. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet did not sin. We have this high priest we can turn to. We have Jesus who came and offered himself as an atoning sacrifice. If you want to look at Romans 3.25 later. Jesus came to be that price paid for our sins. So the first thing, if you're caught in sin, is turning to Jesus, understanding salvation is here. Salvation can be now for you. There is an eternal salvation, absolutely, and I think that's the most important thing. But there can also be an earthly, physical salvation out of your circumstance when you turn away from sin and you turn towards God that you can experience here on earth in a sense of not being wrapped up in sin, not being bound by the punishment and the price for sin that it has on our day-to-day lives. You know, we still will struggle with it, but when we break the chains and it doesn't have a hold of us anymore, there's a peace and a blessing you could have here on earth. Here at MVC, we like to talk about the ABCs of salvation, and I'm going to go over those. If you don't have that, get one of these cards. If you ever, this is not the only way. It's a way we've chosen to go with. If you have opportunities to share Christ with someone, this will walk you through it step by step in a very simple form. First thing is admit that you're a sinner and in need of a Savior. I think that would be easy for all of us, hopefully, is admitting we're a sinner in need of a Savior. Next, believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin. And the C, choose to follow Christ and place your faith in Him. And if you're struggling with sin, the first and most important thing you could do is accept Christ as your Savior. If, if you don't get to that in your life, you're always going to be battling temptation with just your own self-willpower. It's never going to be a, a, the Holy Spirit residing in you, Christ's strength within you, the freedom from sin mentioned in Scripture. So the first thing we would encourage you to do is turn to Christ as Savior. The next thing to do is pursue the truth of God's Word. Every time Jesus responded, did He respond with, well, this is how I feel, or this is some special special prophecy just for me. Sometimes we want these like special divine revelations, yet we've been given God's divine revelation in his word. But yet we want something else. And we see Jesus, what did he reference back to every time? God's word. Are you putting God's word into your life? When you're struggling with sin and temptation, maybe do you have scriptures you can reference that deal with some things you're struggling with? Or is it just, I'm going to, I'm going to get through it, white-knuckle this thing. Jesus would reference the truth of God's Word every time. The next thing you could do is get involved at a local church, and and especially in a small group. And while this is so important, a small group community is this group of believers that gathers together that hopefully you're forming this relationship with, that in James it talks about confess your sins one to another. Okay, why why do we get those relationships where we can do that? So we can have accountability, so we can have a support structure in our life, we don't always just want you to, we, we encourage small groups so much because we want you to start developing those relationships with other believers, not just so you can sit, or, sit around all the time and, and hang out, which that's part of developing a relationship, absolutely. That's part, we, we do that at my small group, 
Every night we, we have our Bible study, we talk for a little bit, and then we play games or we watch a movie or we hang out. And that's part of building those relationships. Then the other side to that is building that relationship so you can talk to each other, so you can challenge each other, so you can help hold each other accountable. That, that's one reason we think it's so important to be in that small community of believers so you build those relationships. So when you're struggling with sin, it's not like I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have a relationship I can turn to here on earth. I don't have someone who can hold my hand and walk me through this. And you feel alone and you feel desperate. It's now you have a community around you that, man, I'm struggling right now. Can you come walk beside me? Can you help me right now? So I would greatly encourage you to get in one of those small groups, not, not for our benefit, it's not, it, for yours, for your help, of finding that, that group of believers in your life. Another way to do it is find a local ministry here. There's a lot of good ones. If, you're, if you see that your life has taken a, um, a turn, an unexpected turn, and you don't like where it's headed, they're, and, and they're not all just for this, but uh, some of the ones I'm going to mention, there's Celebrate Recovery programs in the area. We have people involved with Celebrate Recovery here at the church. You can talk uh, to them. They, they're involved at different churches in our community. There's AA in this community that has a good Christian foundation and Christian people involved with this leadership group. Um, there's a New Life program at the Modesto Gospel Mission in, uh, in Modesto. But there's avenues for you to find that people want to help. When you find sin's destructive pattern has gone beyond temptation, it's destroying your life. And you can also speak with a pastor but I, I, I feel weird saying this because here's the deal. We have our own temptations we struggle with. Man, if I had a magic wand to wave over you to get rid of your temptations, I would have used it up on myself long ago. <laughs> the same for any of us. I think if you come talk to one of us, we're going to help steer you in a direction maybe to find that group or that organization that, that can help you best where you can connect. We, we can pray with you. We can talk to you. We can provide some biblical counsel. But I think sometimes we, we elevate the idea of, of a pastor as someone, I'm, you're going to come and I'm going to, or whatever, and you're not going to be tempted anymore. I, I promise you guys, that is not the case. And we struggle. I already taught, I struggle with one, I struggle with pride. I, I admit that. There's other things that I got in my own life that I still struggle with that I'm working through. But we would love for you to come talk to us so we can steer you in the right direction, hopefully. And the last thing is pray. And pr- pray, pray for God's leading. Pray for God to intervene on your behalf. If you're a believer, and turn to the Lord. Confess those sins to Him. Tell Him your struggles. He knows them. It's not going to catch Him off guard. But we can pray that, Lord, help me out. When you're tempted, even, man, God, I'm, I'm being tempted with this again. Satan's offering me something that that seems so simple, or maybe it seems so big, or he's offering me the easy route, or someone's trying to get at me to get my pride welling up so I respond in a way that's not honoring to you. God, I need your help right now. I don't want to respond in a way that's displeasing to you. I don't want to give in to temptation and sin in my life. I want to be obedient and honor you. Man, take those moments. You know, maybe it's in the situation and you can't just bust out because you'll look like a crazy person if you start talking to your heavenly father right to him, or maybe that's a way to shut him up. I don't know. But find it, and maybe in the, in, in the calm of your, your mind, just say, Lord, help me right now. I'm in a tough spot. I need your help. Well, let's turn to him in prayer. And that's what we're going to do right now as we end. And then Ron's going to come up and lead us through communion. Lord, 
you know temptation is not easy because you endured temptation while you were on earth. You know the appeal of it. And you know so many of us struggle and so many of us fall into sin when we are tempted. And above all, we want to say thank you that you did not fall into sin. You did not give into temptation. That you were a perfect, spotless redeemer. So ultimately, you could pay the price for us on the cross. And Lord, when we struggle with temptation, help us to pledge our obedience and our allegiance to you. Help us to seek your your glory, your honor, your praise. Help us to worship you in those situations. And just give us strength to say no, to turn away from them. Whatever they may be, it could look so different for all of us. Lord, will you just give us the strength to say no to sin, no to Satan, no to its desire to form destructive habits and patterns in our life and say yes to you, say yes to the love you have for us, to the life you want for us. Yeah, Help us in these tough times where temptation's right before us and we're trying to turn away from it. Lord, we need your strength and we need your help. Amen.